What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast, the show that explores the background of Tolkien's amazing world from the very beginning. When we wrapped up the last episode, Belig Strongbow had left Menegroth in order to go back into the wild for a little bit before searching again for Turin. This time, equipped with a, a dangerous sword and some gifts. Belig and Anglicel, his new weapon, went off to the far reaches of the forest and cut down orcs drove them back from the edges of Doriath. And we're told that Anglikel rejoiced to be unsheathed, as if it had a personality of its own. And then all of a sudden, Balag's companions start missing him. He disappears. Off to find Turin. And the camera pans from the edges of this forest to a group of travelers out in the wilderness. Turin has convinced his men that it is time to move on. They've been heading towards Amonrud. And this part of the story is interesting to me. It's unique and, and different in a way. We're going to come across some other characters that... I'm still debating the best way to understand or to interpret their inclusion in, the, in this work and what this actually means as some form of introspection into the, or outrospection? Is that, what's the best word for looking into the mind of another person? For Tolkien's mind. We will meet 
In this episode, Mim, the Petty Dwarf, and two others. And I can't think of any other specific stories that I'm aware of where we actually interact with petty dwarfs. And I'm sure somebody out there will be like, oh, but Tom, it's this one, this one. We talk about petty dwarves in this one. Or, or the, you actually come across one in a, a scene from this thing. Uh, I don't know. But nothing springs to mind right now. And you might be wondering, what is a petty dwarf? We, we haven't really talked about them. And they are kind of like the equivalent of the the more wild elves, the ones that don't necessarily partake in the regular structures and customs of the more sophisticated or civilized elf types. But they're a little bit different. And you're going to see here that even among Turin's people, they are treated differently in kind of a way. And again, I'm struggling with this because it's it's as if they are treated like they are people who are just above the level of beasts. And that's how they're used to being treated by not only the elves, like the high elves and, you know, the the Noldor, the, the ones who seem kind of full of themselves, let's just be honest, but also their other dwarven kin and pretty much anybody else they meet. And so they're reclusive and they're simple and yet they're still people. And it's this strange thing. I mean, we've got the dynamic with the orcs and how they're treated and the question of well, if they came from elves, do they still go to the house of Mandos and all of that stuff, right? Like how, how are you supposed to handle personhood when it comes to types of people, races, and how they're not really equal. This is this weird middle place where you have petty dwarves. And let me know your thoughts on this, because I'd love to hear your perspective. So without further ado, let's get into the story. So this part of the story begins with Turin leading his group out of Syrian's Vale, out away westward, and they are cautious. They know that the wilds are dangerous. They know that they're leaving the safety of the woods and the areas that they are familiar with. And immediately they run into a group of three dwarves. And we're not given a lot of detail here, at least not as much as I would have wanted. This section of the story, and you'll notice this in the Silmarillion, some of the sections of the story feel more like the writing in a novel. The uh, ground view, detailed points, this person said this, this person said this, this person walked over here and did this thing. And then some of it feels a bit more pulled out almost like someone's telling you about the story rather than you actually watching the story unfold yourself. And this section feels like the latter because we're given very little specific details. 
And I, I know Christopher Tolkien went through and edited this all together. So there may have been sparse details on this, but this is one of those sections where I wish there was more. This is what the text says. And it chanced at, at a time of evening that they came upon three dwarves. So this group of men, dangerous men, outlaws, come across a group of dwarves while traveling in, in mass together, who fled before them. But one that lagged behind was seized and thrown down, and a man of the company took his bow and let fly an arrow at the others as they vanished in the dusk. Now, let's pause here. It sounds like they're chasing these dwarves or the dwarves. I mean, the, my initial thought here is, oh, the dwarves saw this group coming. So they decided to flee because they thought, oh, this might be a dangerous group of people. And so they run away. But if that were the case, then why would the group pursue them and even let an arrow fly? There has to be some intentionality here or some something else happened in the midst of this that we are just not privy to. And even though we just heard about Turin vowing to fight only against the enemies of the free people, he's still okay with what's happening here, which is part of why this section is difficult for me, because it goes on and it says, now the dwarf that they had taken was named Mim. And he pleaded for his life before Turin and offered as ransom to lead them to his hidden halls, which none might find without his aid. Then Turin pitied Mim and spared him. And he said, where is your house? And it goes on from here. We'll continue with that part. But this section right here, they, they take him ransom. They capture him. And he says, okay, what can I do? to like, like basically here, I'm wandering out in the wild. I don't have anything on me. And I'm just picturing this is probably how this goes. Like, I don't have any food. I don't have any supplies. I don't have any money. What do you want? You've caught me. What do you want? And they say, well, we're heading towards this hill in the distance. And we need to know more about what's over there and have a safe place to, to be. You're a dwarf. You probably have a safe place over there. If that's and you know, like probably got information from him that sure enough, that's where they were going to. And he's like, okay, well, if you spare me, I will show you where I live, like the caves that I've dug out and you can live there too, I guess. See how odd this is. It's very strange. Um, and so the conversation goes on and, and Turin asks, where is your house? And Mim answers, High above the lands lies the house of Mim upon the great hill, Ammon Rudd. Is that hill called now, since the elves changed all the names? Now, this is the one part of this story that begins to fit together some of the pieces of who these dwarves actually are. The elves changed all the names. Basically, we were here first. The elves showed up and changed all the names. And now we are living on the outsides of society, basically. Then Turin was silent, and he looked long upon the dwarf, and at last he said, You shall bring us to that place. Now, this is another point that I find is interesting, because there's very little other detail here, but we're told that he sits silently looking at the dwarf, probably thinking about this, and going, Okay, do I, do I take this guy up on this offer? What do I do? 
and he has a group to take care of. They don't have anywhere safe to be, and so now is an opportunity, so he takes it. Then the story goes on. On the next day, they set out thither. I love the word thither, by the way. Following Mim to Ammon Rudd. Now that hill stood upon the edge of the moorlands that rose between the vales of Syrian and Narog. Remember the, the rivers? And high above the stony heath, it reared its crown. But its steep gray head was bare, save for the red saragon that mantled the stone. And as the men of Turin's band drew near, the sun westering broke through the clouds and fell upon the crown, and the saragon was all in flower. Then one of among them said, There is blood on the hilltop. This is symbolic. These kinds of details do not make their ways into Tolkien's work accidentally. And you might think initially that this is mirrored in the the section where, um, who is it? Uh, Sam and Frodo are walking through the area outside of uh, Gondor, where there are the old statues and things. And one of the heads of the statues is on the ground and the uh, plants have grown around it and they flower and it looks like a crown is back on the king's head. Remember that scene from the movies? That was in the movies. Um, This is different. These flowers are red. This signifies blood. There is blood on the hill. And they make their way up the slopes, the steep slopes, into the mouth of the cave. And then Mim bows to Turin and says, Enter into Bar-en-Danwed, the house of ransom, or so it shall be called. And we're given a name here, right? We don't know the actual name of what Mim calls it. It is now called, to him, the house of ransom, because that's what he offered. And now there came another dwarf bearing light to greet him, and they spoke together. Remember, they're in the dark here. This is in a cave. And they spoke together and passed swiftly down into the darkness of the cave. But Turin followed after and came at length to a chamber far within, lit by dim lamps hanging upon chains. There he found Mim kneeling at a stone couch beside the wall, and he tore his beard and wailed, crying one name unceasingly. Now, we'll pause here. This is another one of those points of of interest. Tearing his beard. This is one of those phrases that is very odd to our modern ears. We don't tear our beards. We don't tear our clothes in mourning. These are almost biblical terms. In fact, they are biblical terms. This is used in the Bible. It's also used in other places as well. This is a sign of deep mourning. And for good reason. On the couch there lay a third. But Turin, entering, stood beside Mim, and he offered him aid. Then Mim looked up at him and said, You can give no aid, for this is Kim, my son, and he is dead, pierced by an arrow. He died at sunset. Iben, my son, has told me. So immediately, this puts this all into perspective here. Mim was traveling with his two sons, Kim and Iben. And the arrow that was let loosed by by one of Turin's men hit Kim and was enough to kill him. And again, in the story of Turin, we have another one of those tragic moments where had he told his men 
let them go. We're supposed to be only fighting orcs. Then none of this would have happened. And there's a benefit to them. They have a place to stay that's relatively safe. But at the same time, they've now created a situation, a dire situation, something to be regretted. Then pity rose in Turin's heart, and he said to Mim, Alas, I would recall that shaft if I could. Now, Bar and Danwed, this house shall be called in truth, for if ever I come to any wealth, I will pay you a ransom of gold for your son in token of sorrow, though it gladden your heart no more. Basically, I owe you now. I've taken you captive, but the ransom is now mine also. I owe you for the death of your son. That shouldn't have happened. And this is particularly interesting here because remember, I was talking about how everybody seems to treat the petty dwarves differently, like they're lesser than, that they're just above beasts. And you can tell in Mim's response just how much that this is this is uncommon for somebody like Turin to say something like this. Mim rose and looked long at Turin. I hear you, he said. You speak like a dwarf lord of old. And at that I marvel. Now my heart is cooled, though it is not glad. And in this house you may dwell, if you will, for I will pay my ransom. This is so interesting. He owes Turin a ransom for being captured, but Turin, even though he's the capturer and the one who basically approved the killing of the son is going to pay him back. And Mim in this situation is going, basically you speak like a dwarven Lord. You have a sense of honor, even though you seem like these brigands who would just be willing to capture anybody and stay in their house, right? Like who are you? Why would you do that? But I'm not happy that this happened, but I'm also cooled right he's not he's he's not burning with the desire for revenge here he's going okay that that was the proper way to respond to an accident like this basically so okay <laughs> and then we get another passage where it seems like we're we're getting this kind of summary version so began the abiding of turin in the hidden house of mim upon Ammon rudd and he walked on the greensward before the mouth of the cave and looked out east and west and north. And it goes on and it mentions all the places you can see from this hill off in the distance. And the point here is twofold. One, Turin laments missing his home. He's thinking of his mother far away and the things that he's done and the places he's been. But he also can see so far off in the distance from this hill in every direction. It's actually a very solid vantage point, which is beneficial, especially for his band of brigands being able to see anything that would be coming from a distance. And then we end up with a moment where he sits down with Mim and they talk. And we hear that they spend evenings talking together and Turin is learning the lore of Mim's people. And this this part is interesting. Listen to this. 
In the time that followed, Turin spoke much with Mim, and sitting with him alone, he listened to his lore and the tale of his life. For Mim came of dwarves that were banished in ancient days from the great dwarf cities of the east, and long before the return of Morgoth, they wandered westward into Beleriand, and they became diminished in stature and in smithcraft, and they took to lives of stealth, walking with bowed shoulders and furtive steps. Before the dwarves of Nagrod and Belagost came west over the mountains, the elves of Beleriand knew not what these others were, and they hunted them and slew them, but afterwards they let them alone, and they were called Neogith Nibin, the petty dwarves in the Sindarin tongue. They loved none but themselves, and if they feared and hated the orcs, they hated the elder no less, and the exiles most of all. For the Noldor, they said, had stolen their lands and their homes. So Mim's people may have been some of Durin's people from Moria that generations ago were banished and settled in this, this part of the world far from anybody else confusing the elves who hadn't met dwarves before. And there's a few other details here. The, they became diminutive in stature. They shrunk. They were less high and noble. This is another one of those themes, right? And they lost some of their ability when it came to smithcraft. And so they lived off the land in ways that were different from the other dwarves. And on top of that, we're told here that the caves of Nargothrond were actually discovered by them before the elves. And much of those caves were actually created and mined by the petty dwarves before the elves even arrived there. They have been losing their land and been treated like lesser people for generations. And yet they persisted. And this brings back memories of conversations with Tolkien and in interviews and things where people asked about the dwarves and he talked about the origins of uh, creating the different races and how the dwarves were not so much of the, uh, the Nordic style of dwarf, although the names and things came from similar uh, works, but in personality and in their cultures, they were actually more about the marginalized peoples of the world that he was aware of people like the Jews. And in this sense, they very much are. I mean, uh, not in every sense. It's not like uh, marginalized people are always shorter or lose their culture or things like that. But this idea that that they were a people without a home, that were traveling the land and, and having to do with what they could in order to survive, that kind of thing is very, very similar to, to what's going on here. Now, there is one other detail here that is interesting. It says here, but now at last they had dwindled and died out of Middle-earth, all save Mim and his two sons. And Mim was old, even in the reckoning of dwarves, old and forgotten. Mim and his sons might be the last of their people. And Turin is now responsible for the death of one of them. Can you imagine how that might weigh on your conscience?
So let me tell you a little story. You know that we get sponsors on these podcasts and Yuffie, who does these smart locks with video cameras in them, reached out and they sent me a smart door lock with a 2K camera, a doorbell and a finger reader, all the bells and whistles. And I was like, okay, cool. They sent it to me. I already have one on my back door. When I opened this up and installed it, I was like, why didn't I go with Yuffie to begin with? Because this is a step above the one that I've been using. The finger reader just works. The 2K camera is so clear. I can see when somebody's at the front door, if it's Amazon or if it's somebody trying to sell me something. It even has night vision and works in the dark. It makes me feel so much safer. Plus, my son can just put his finger on the door and just come right in when he gets home from school. He doesn't have to worry about losing keys and you don't even have to change the batteries in these because it's got like a 10,000 milliwatt hour battery that lasts for like four months. Go check these out today. Search for Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Again, search Eufy Video Lock. I think you'll love it. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, here we are in the middle of the show. And first of all, as we start a new year, 2023, I just have to tell all of you how very thankful I am for every single one of you, not only our patrons, everybody who listens to the show. Thank you so much for being here. This is a project that a year ago I was throwing around in my head and thinking, okay, could I, can I do this? Will people like it? <laughs> is it going to work? And this has been amazing. I didn't expect nearly the response that I've gotten from you. So thank you very, very, very much. <laughs> I just have to say that at the beginning. Here's to the next year and where the show's going in the next year. I hope you guys are on board for this and stay with it. I really do appreciate all of you. And I appreciate all of our patrons. We have so many. It's been two weeks. We had our end of the year episode last last week with the other hosts. I hope you guys enjoyed kind of something a little bit different at the end of the year. But we're getting back into the, the swing of things. And I've got to shout out our new patrons, which include, let's see, Ben G, uh, Lass D, Marjorie R, Alice P, El Grand Nobler, <laughs> Austin C., uh, Chris E, Sophia K, and oh man, we've got I have to scroll the thing up because it's been so long. We've got so many new patrons. Noah M, um, let's see, uh, and Lynn F. <laughs> 
thank you so much to all of you guys. You guys are amazing. 161 of you support this show. Every single one of you. I really do appreciate. And I have to shout out our um, <laughs> our tier three VIP patrons. I've got a number of you guys now as well. We've got Bo, Brandy D, Chewbacca, David M, man, more and more Star Wars people, Esoteric Rage, Goblin, Jesse P, Larry, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Sam B, Shannon L, and Sheev Palpatine. Thank you so much for all of you guys. We also have some reviews. We've got to catch up on these as well. I'll try to get through them as quickly as I can so we can get back to the rest of the episode. All right, here we go. We have one from uh, Great Flame Ryu in the United States. Oh, Ryu? Is it Ryu? Is that the more accurate pronunciation? Awesome sauce. This lore cast is your best so far, Tom. Well, thank you, Ryu. I have trouble keeping up with all your pods as you just keep putting out so much content. And that's saying something as I'm a mailman and listen to you most of the day. Oh, that's awesome. Excellent work, my friend. You spread these tales out like a fine gondolian (laughs) butter on toast. Hopefully not too thinly like Bilbo was feeling. Uh, Thank you so much for that. Then we have FP King of the Water from the United States who writes L-O-T-R lore must listen. My days at work ere the finding of this podcast were like to the Dagor Bragalak <laughs> listening to the Silmarillion over and over trying to pick it all in my brain, pa- try and pack it all in my brain. When I discovered Tom, not in reference to Tom Bombadil, as far as I know, no, that's actually my real name. And I don't think my parents named me after the fictional character. Uh, it smote me as a blow. He began to put into perspective and break down the Silma for me in as I flew hither and thither on my forklift. That's awesome. It is folly that I spend my days absorbing such middle earthly knowledge. I say nay. Thank you, Tom. Teller of tales, explainer of things written, Lord of podcasts. Wow. And his dominion was Tolkien. (laughs) That's great. Also, we have one. Uh, thank you so much for that one. We all we have one from Seer Spinsky in the Netherlands who writes perfect for everyone. A very clear explanation on the beginning of Middle Earth for LOTR fans. A very soothing voice for background noise while studying. Awesome. I don't know. How do you study and then also listen to the show? At the same time? Uh, I don't know how that works. Maybe you can process things in a way that I can't. That's awesome. Great stories. If that is your thing. A good balance between the tone of Tolkien and a more modern one to keep the ambience and the understandability, if that is a word. Yeah, I think that's a word. I especially love the background music and sounds to get you more immersed. Well, thank you, Sears. I appreciate that. Then we have one from uh, Trekkie Chick. I think it's got threes in it, but I think that's how it's spelled. Trekkie, yeah, Trekkie Chick in Canada. ADHD Savior. I struggle to sit and read Silm. Sorry, Professor T. So this is perfect. A-plus listening companion to Rings of Power. Now I know more about Finrod than Dead Brother. (laughs) Like on the show, right? There's something so Beowulfian about Tolkien's words being read out loud as well. Hearing about someone being smashed into blood has never been so engaging. Episodes 38 and 39 had me giggling. I will say, uh, near Nyeth, dear robots, near Nyeth was a cute little Easter egg about the professor being besties with... C.S. Lewis, though. P.S. Don't remember if you've addressed this yet, but stance on Balrog wings? Um, yeah, I don't think there's anywhere in the lore where it talks about them having wings. Uh, that was a Peter Jackson invention, as far as I understand. Uh, but it looks cool, I guess. So there's that. Uh, thank you, Trekkie Chick. Uh, we have just two more. Lord Devourer from the US who writes, I love the show. My name is Simon and I'm nine years old. Hi, Simon. This lore cast really opens up Tolkien's word or world. Not word. 
world for me. I had no idea that there was so much lore to be unlocked in The Lord of the Rings. I really like the fact that there are so many worlds beyond Middle-earth. Thank you so much for making these episodes. Well, you're very welcome, Lore Devourer. Uh, I hope you continue to enjoy the show. Um, my, uh, I have a nephew who's a little bit older than you who also listens to the show. So hi, to, hi to you as well, nephew. Um, then we also have one more from St. Pablo in the United States. He writes, fantastic. I've been looking for a Lord of the Rings podcast that explains Tolkien's world from the very beginning. And this one does it perfectly. I didn't know you could binge podcasts. Haha, <laughs> five stars. Yeah. Right. Like lots of people are like, I, I just binged the podcast and I got through all the episodes in like one week and I'm holy moly that's crazy uh like crazy cool not crazy insane i guess maybe sort of insane i don't know hopefully i'm not insulting anybody all right let's move on with the rest of the show thank you everybody So the conversation between Mim and Turin continues here, and I'm just going to read this as it as it goes. He's talking about how they dwindled out over time, and then how the dwarves became old, or at least the petty dwarves, became old and forgotten. And it goes on and says, And in his halls, Mim's halls, the smithies were idle, and the axes rusted, and their name was remembered only in ancient tales of Doriath and Nargothrond. But when the year drew on to midwinter, snow came down from the north, heavier than they had known it in the river vales, and Amonred was covered deep. And they said that the winters worsened in Beleriand as the power of Angband grew. And imagine this, like the, the darkness from the north, the cold north is seeping down, but also the weather is getting worse because of it. Which is an interesting point. I, I don't know that Tolkien had any sense of things like global warming and how industry and that kind of thing would affect environment, but it kind of coincides a little bit here, which is interesting. And then we find out about how this actually affects them. It says, then only the hardiest dared stir abroad and some fell sick and all were pinched with hunger. This is a slim time for them. It's hard to get around. It's hard to hunt. It's hard to do anything than just hunker down. But it's a good thing they found this place, I guess, right? But in the dim dusk of a winter's day, there appeared suddenly among them a man, as it seemed, of great bulk and girth, cloaked and hooded in white. Now let's pause here. Who is this? A man who's tall and bulky and wearing white white clothing so purposely wearing white clothing for blending in with the snow also what cultures would manufacture white clothing of the men that seems very uncommon you would have browns and leather colors and 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 cotton and and dyes that you could imagine from nature but white how do you get white clothing without having a culture that can make something like that and bleach it? Well, it goes on. And he walked up to the fire without a word. He just shows up somehow. And when men sprang up in fear, he laughed. 
threw back his hood, and beneath his wide cloak he bore a great pack. And in the light of the fire, Turin looked again on the face of Belig Kuthalian. Now he was broad and bulky because of the pack that he was wearing, not because he was a large fellow. He was an elf-sized fellow. <laughs> Make sense? Thus Belig returned once more to Turin, and their meeting was glad, and with him he brought out of Dimbar the dragon helm of Dor Loman. He brings Turin his family helm. And for a specific reason, it says here, thinking that it might lift Turin's thought above his life in the wilderness as the leader of a petty company. But still Turin would not return to Doriath, and Belig, yielding to his love against his wisdom, remained with him and did not depart. And in that time, he labored much for the good of Turin's company. So Belig decides to hang out. He's still trying to convince Turin to come back. Come back to Doriath. You are forgiven. But yet he still will not do it. And so Belig stays with him. And if you remember at their last parting, each of them said, you come find me. And clearly Turin was not the one to budge on that. Belig is the one who budges here. And this was probably very fortunate for Turin and his men, because we're told that he labors for their benefit here. And we're, we're given more specific details in here as well. Those that were hurt or sick he tended and gave to them the Lembus of Melian, which we talked about on the previous episode, was a big deal. This wasn't something that was just given without any thought to anybody outside of the elves. It is now being shared among them and helping to nourish them through the winter, which, again, was particularly useful in a very dark and cold winter. And then they were quickly healed, for the Grey Elves were less in skill and knowledge than the exiles from Valinor. In the ways of the life of Middle-earth, they had a wisdom beyond the reach of men. So it's a good thing Belig showed up again. And because Belig was strong and enduring, far-sighted in mind as in eye, he came to be held in honor among the outlaws. The rest of the men can tell Belig is a hero. <laughs> he's a heroic character, right? He's a strong dude. He's done his time out in the wilderness. He knows what he's doing. He can survive and he is tough. And that fits really well with this group of brigands who can look at him and go, okay, yeah, he's somebody who's, he's, he's cool. He's one of us, right? Even though he's not a, a human, he's, he's an elf, but yeah, there's still an issue here. Remember all the problems that the petty dwarves had with being treated poorly, especially by the elves? Well, this section says this. The hatred of Mim for the elf that had come into Bar and Danwid grew ever greater, and he sat with Ibn, his son, in the deepest shadows of his house, speaking to none. But Turin paid now little heed to the dwarf, and when winter passed and spring came, they had sterner work to do. Turn's thoughts turn to Morgoth. What is Morgoth up to? And after surviving this dark and cold winter, where do they turn next? Thanks for listening to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast. If you'd like to learn more about other fantasy worlds, check out my other podcasts, the Elder Scrolls Lorecast, the Witcher Lorecast, and more at robotsradio.net. 
If you'd like to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a note on Twitter at robots underscore radio or join our amazing community on the Robots Radio Discord. There are links in the show notes or just search Robots Radio Discord or find the link on robotsradio.net. I'll see you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.